I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. Ciao Simone. This week we're covering one of the most important topics in ethical fashion, supply chains. It's your favorite. Yes, indeed, Claire. Hello. Hello. It's one of my favorite topics because in our globalized world, offshore production is the norm. And many consumers, people normally do not see how factories operate. People have never visited the factory. Many people do not know about the processes. And on top of that, supply chains have grown in length. There are many subcontractors today. We've seen the terrible disaster of Rana Plaza, but there are many, many shady and bad situations. You know, today the supply chain is structured in several tiers. In the first tier, you have the normal first subcontractors, the ones to whom uh, production is contracted by the brands and distributors. The assumption that sustainability standards and labor standards trickle down the supply chain through the different tiers is wrong because they stop at the first tier and then you do not know what happens down. We know that many brands have no idea what's going on in their supply chain, but I think that the consumer knows even less. They've never heard of tier one and tier two. Once you get beyond the garment factory where the garments are sewn, there's just not enough information shared about the next level down. So the fabrics and even the trims and the notions, this is not something that your average buyer of clothes knows about, right? Indeed, indeed. We were over the phone a short while ago recording the podcast with one of our guests, Sergio Tamborini, the CEO of a luxury fabric giant Ratti, and we were agreeing exactly on this. Consumers, but even sometimes some fashion designers, they do not really know about fabric. We have to change our culture, I think, to pass, Sergio said it, from a culture of brand to a culture of product, the features of the product. And the fabric is the very starting point, the quality of the fabric. It's what makes a product durable, what makes a product sustainable. Fabric production is a huge network of activities. It involves the fiber, it involves the spinning, the dyeing, the color, everything. It's a world. When I was a boy, <laughs> in the place where I was born. <laughs> No, <laughs> that is brilliant. It's my favourite. No, no, no. We're going to make these intros short. But you raise a very important point, which is that beyond the cut and sew and then beyond the fabric, you're going right back to the yarn stage. And then before that, back to the fibre stage. So where has the cotton, for example, been grown? Supply chains are complex. And because they are so opaque and now so long, there could be all kinds of terrible things hidden within them. We're talking about modern slavery, for example. And we're not going to get into that in this episode, although we may do in a future one with your friend Aurette van Heerden. Indeed, Aurette is one of the heroes of the fair labour, of the international fair labour movement. But right now, you mentioned you've just been talking to Mr Tamburini, who is... The CEO of Ratti, a giant luxury fabric producer, 
of silk and many other kinds of fabric in Como, Italy and in Tunisia, an example of sustainability and an example of a supply chain which is carefully controlled. Because the issue today is to have control in the supply chain and to avoid uh, human rights violations to happen in supply chains. We have to remember that these human rights violations like forced labor and forms of slavery are still well present in the supply chain of this industry across the world. And we have to fight them with all our capacities because it is unacceptable that in the world of today we have formed of forced labor, of, of slavery. It's unacceptable. We are also going to talk to Aisha Barenblatt from Remake. They are a consumer group. They focus on transparency, on accountability. So this is exactly one of the things that we need today. And I'm also speaking to Rishwaraj Duwan, who is from Seven Weave Silk, and he's incredible. You love his work, don't you? Yes, I do. Rituraj is great. This is great, Claire, because like you said, this is a very serious topic that everybody needs to know about. It's also another one, another contact developed out of our ethical fashion initiative hackathon where we got our community, our international community from 60 different countries together to come up with big ideas on how to change fashion for the better. And Rituraj is one of, of the people whom we got to know thanks to that. Okay, great. Let's get to it. Sergio Tamborini, CEO of Ratti. We are honored to have you with us Ratti is an iconic Italian company. It's one of the world's greatest manufacturers of luxury fabric. You work with luxury brands, Sergio. You work with famous ready-to-wear names. And if it weren't enough, you also work with the Ethical Fashion Initiative in Africa and in Afghanistan. Welcome, Sergio Tamburini. Thank you very much. I am proud to be in relationship with you and with uh, Ethical Fashion Initiative. Thank you, Sergio. We are proud of that. We are very proud of that. Can you tell us something about Rati's history and where you produce today? The company started in 1945, if I am not mistaken, making silk fabrics in Como. Isn't it so? Yeah, Rati was established at the end of the Second World War Exactly the 25th of April, but in Italy ah. is a date, a particular date, absolutely, uh, was registered in Como on 25th of April, 1945. So it's uh, something that is a uh, is the liberation day in Italy. So it's, yes. uh, it's the idea of the perspective, no? Um, wow, it's an it's an important date. Wow, it's a, it's a very important day for our nation, and it's a long story. It's a long story, and Ratti different steps, step by step, arrived to be listed at the Stock Exchange in, in Milan in uh, 81. And the Marzotto Group uh, became the main shareholder of the company in 2010. But uh, the family remain uh, with our core business is to be uh, the supplier of the big customer of the world of the luxury system, yes. starting from the, the producer for uh, for the scarf, for the ties, for different fabrics, 
the Pret-a-Porter with the big brand uh, of the, the, the fashion system, French and Italian fashion system, including also the part of the United States that remain uh, on the high level of the product and looking yes. the, now also the new market like the China and the new market like the Africa market that is yes. in terms of perspective very, very interesting. And where do you produce? You're still producing coal? We produce absolutely in Italy. We produce in Italy the part of the fabrics and we have also an atelier for the production of the scarf in North Africa, in Tunisia, where yes. I involve 250 women. The Marzotto Group was established in, the, in Tunisia from a long time ago, so it was natural for us. The company has managed with the same uh, idea of the company that we have in Italy, so is uh, with the certification SA8000. Yeah. Social so responsibility, the social yes. responsibility. So all labor standards, all labor standards respected and Excellent. everything. Absolutely. Excellent. Exactly. Uh, Sergio, how do you approach sustainability? What are the biggest challenges today to be sustainable in your opinion, from your perspective? Now, the sustainability is one of the main goals for every company. We start basically 10 years ago. And starting from a view that is economical view, we start with the revisiting the whole process with the, the color, all the chemical product, saving water, saving fuel, saving electrical power, saving thickness, uh, color powder, and so on. And now we will start with a company that we call uh, Second Life Fiber, Second Life Print, uh, work on the waste product. It is an approach completely different, regenerate the material. So I think that we have to develop and to work along uh, on this kind of matter. Regeneration, circular economy, we look forward to seeing that. In terms to support uh, an approach at the sustainability that is not only talk, talk, talk. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Listen, we, we live in a very difficult historical moment and before we started this recording, we were speaking exactly about that. How has the textile industry in your segment, in the luxury segment, been impacted by COVID-19? Surely the impact... Uh, is a tremendous. Now we are uh, looking at the, the, the second quarter result of the company of the luxury system. Yes. Passing from one to the other, the numbers are uh, surely the, terrible in terms of uh, fall down of the turnover. 40%, okay. 60%. 40-60% uh, down yeah, 40 in revenue. Down. I think that uh, in, on yearly basis uh, is uh, probably The 40% will, Minus will 40. be the, the balance uh, between uh, someone at 35, someone at 45. Uh, probably we have to rethink uh, the way to live uh, the fashion system in terms mm. of perspective. Mm. Because if this year is uh, 40% less, uh, probably next year the, the number will be different, but the increase may be 20%. So you forecast still a loss, a consistent loss in revenue also next year? The, the model of the fashion system, uh, production and the consumption that we have in the last uh, 10 years, the, the luxury system uh, was an imitation of the 
fast fashion. And so one collection after the other in the consumption of material increased a lot. Uh, I don't remember perfectly the number, but uh, 150 billion of pieces of, uh, of, of garment have here. So it means uh, 20 garments for every one. So the consumption of material was uh, really enormous, incredible, and part of the production was also destroyed. To maintain yes. the price, so I think that all the fashion systems are to rethink. Now is it's not a joke, but I think that we we are in a business that is absolute, absolutely unuseful for the world. Yes, the fashion system is something that is not. If, if we stop to produce for one years, in the world happen nothing, absolutely, except except for all the person. But All the workers in the supply again. chain. So it's something that is serious, is extremely serious on one side. It is absolutely unusual for the world in the other side. Now is is the moment to, to rethink the quality of the product, the, the capacity of the product to, to remain for a long time, yes. the number of the show that we have ever here for each brand. Yes. When I was a child, during the summer season, you bought the the bath robe yes. for the, yes. the swimming pool. And during the winter, you go to, to buy the coat. Now is something that is unbelievable. In 60 years, the world became from so big so small. So small, in, yeah. In uh, 1953, the first uh, two persons arrived on the top of the Everest. Yeah, it's true. The last year, probably, we paid, we can go uh, to, to have a, a trip on the Everest with uh, a very dangerous activity, but it's possible almost for everyone. No. I have I have a, a disclosure here to do. Mr. Tamburini and I, we are both passionate about alpinism, but the <laughs> difference is that Mr. Tamburini is still an alpinist while I retired. You are still on it's top of true. the mountains. <laughs> it's not true that I, I remain an alpinist. I try to move uh, on the mountains. <laughs> but uh, uh, never went to consider that uh, everything now was possible. You move from Milan to London and you spend... Uh, less money that move from Milan to Bologna by car. So no, absolutely. It's unbelievable, yeah. no? It's so unbelievable. In, uh, in two months, uh, the world returned to be bigger compared with one year ago. So it's yes. clear that uh, has to change, something has to change. Or we go back and yeah. uh, the end of 19, Yes. or we have to rethink in a different way the food, uh, the fashion, the, the, the trip. Uh... So it's a daunting task. It's about redefining the whole business model of the fashion system. It's maybe about distancing fashion from the influence of fast fashion and rethinking something centered on product, on the product, on the real product that lasts, on a product that is circular, on the people behind the product and all the rest. And probably a company like the one that you direct is well-placed to think about that. Speaking about products, Sergio, you and I, we are both textile appreciators. Designers need to, to really get back to the basics of fabric, to know fabric, to appreciate fabric, because this orgy of brands and, and shapes and colors and the continuous availability of new pieces of garments and accessories probably led people to forget about the basics, the essential point, which is fabric, which is fabric, the quality of the fabric that you wear. It's so important, isn't it? 
Also for I, I agree with you. It's one of the possibility of the future to renovate the fashion system is to pass from the power of the brand and the power of the product. The power of the product. The, really, the power of the... That's a beautiful... From the power of the brand to the power of the product. That's a beautiful statement. We have to use it together in some of our activities and coming to the product. Uh, Sergio, you are always traveling for your work, but that time you left Como to come to Africa, to come to Burkina Faso, to stay with us, traveling across Burkina to see our operations, to see our artisans, to meet them, to also supply us with a lot of suggestions on how to improve our production. And you've done a lot also for our production of silk in Afghanistan. So what were your takeaways, your impressions from that visit with the Ethical Fashion Initiative? The, the travel in Africa remains something for, for me, but not only for me, also for the person that we were with me in Africa really an extraordinary experience because we return at the beginning for our story. First really? Thing is, uh, yeah, because uh, the textile uh, activity in the, in the human story after the food uh, to cover the, the, the body is the second activity. So uh, yes. the, the, the textile, uh, the production of fabric is a, a activity of the old economy. So. We return at the past on one side. It's obvious that we, we have to help that kind of activity to join at the social side, also an economical side, so to improve in terms of the tools that are used and so on. But in, in the meantime, we have to preserve the sense and the quality of the production that is, uh, is made in that region. We have to maintain absolutely the identity of, of the product that we have. There are many products in Africa, not only in Africa, that lose uh, the identity because became products that are realized today with uh, fiber, chemical fiber and not with uh, natural yes. fiber. Yes. Uh, so is uh, I think that uh, in terms of perspective for the fashion system, that will be the real luxury in the future. Wow, this, yeah. this is incredible. Africa today is the territory where the, the power of the Chinese with a low level of product uh, is the standard. And uh, that I think is not positive. For example, the story of the wax, uh, that is a, a, a very interesting product uh, that became from Far East and arriving in the Western Africa and was uh, recognized today like a, a typical African product. But also the company that was established in the, in the Guinea Gulf, in Lagos or in, uh, in Nigeria, was destroyed by the importation in the, in the low cost. So I think that we have to, to help also the market to, to evolve in terms of quality of the product and on the other side to preserve and to help the initiative like the initiative of ethical fashion initiative to maintain the, the position and to improve the quality and to establish a relationship with the fashion system. It's not easy at the being time for the reason that we discussed before, but I think it's one of, of the perspectives of the future. And you tried to print Uh, some of our scarves from Afghanistan that we yeah. have developed together. How is it working? 
No, I, the first uh, the first sample was not so so beautiful, was not so. But when you go deeply to understand uh, and to define the product, the last uh, sample that I have seen uh, on one week ago, ten days ago, was improved a lot in terms of quality. So I think that also that is an opportunity, because the silk is uh, today basically the. The silk that is uh, used here in the area of Como, but in the fashion system, is 95 uh, from China. Is is one of the other problem. We cannot uh, have a relationship in terms of sourcing only with uh, one country. With one country, yes. Uh, so we have to to help uh, some other nation uh, to develop the the activity in the silk production. That is a typical business. Uh, that is a family business. The silk production where there is a, a poor area is a typical job that is made by the young people or the oldest people of the family, the women, uh, not the men. And it's also interesting in Tunisia, we look together at a project in Tunisia. Yes, we are, also... we are developing a project together. Exactly. Maybe also culture that is uh, the realization of a um, culture of mulberry tree and uh, the, the datary, I don't know which is the name yes, of the Yes, the, the dates, I think it's dates, the, yes. The, the, the tree for, at the, where the desertification is improving, maybe a barrier and the diversification, the desertification of the area of the south, the south of Tunisia. So maybe different things that can be realized. This, this is beautiful uh, because you, you mentioned the work we are planning to do together in Tunisia, which also stops desertification. And because of the integration of agriculture, the dates and the mulberry tree, in Afghanistan it's the same because of climate change, but there it's mulberry tree and saffron instead of dates. So it's the same scheme. I remember traveling across Burkina Faso, the southwest of, of Burkina Faso, we were together in a car and we were speaking about mulberry tree and silk and Afghanistan and having this global conversation. Because the reality is that those who work in luxury fabric like you on a global scale have also a global vision of problems because you are led to see the world with different lenses in a different way and you have a very deep vision also of society because you go to touch the basics, labor, uh, family and everything. It's been a very interesting conversation, Sergio, that span from fashion to sustainability to social issues, to development, to some elements even of geopolitics. Thank you for being with us during this podcast. Thank you to you, and uh, I hope to see you soon uh, face by face. <laughs> the COVID-19 disruptions have affected everyone in fashion, from brands and retailers right through to suppliers and workers, but those at the bottom tend to be the most vulnerable. Aisha Barenblatt's US-based organisation Remake has been campaigning for brands who've cancelled orders to pay up. I spoke to her about why the current system is particularly hard on the most marginalised in fashion supply chains. My name is Aisha Berenblad and I am the founder of Remake. We are an advocacy organization that's focused on making fashion a force for good. I have focused on working conditions and thinking about the people that make our clothes for the past 15 years, including having the pleasure of working within the UN system for the ILO Better Work program. And I am so pleased to be here today. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start just by 
kind of putting some context around the supply chain question. The current business model of the fashion industry has been very effective in optimising shareholder wealth, but it's been less effective in creating wealth for workers. What's your take on this? You know, you're absolutely correct that the way the system is currently structured, the garment supply chain, it works for the very few at the very top. And what we haven't seen is the wealth that is being created by this highly profitable industry trickling down. If we were to look over 10-year data, particularly when it comes to suppliers, there's been this race to the bottom, you know, with especially with the advent of fast fashion consumers, customers wanting things cheaper and faster with all of the risk being pushed on to suppliers who in turn then pass that risk on to workers. And so it's been fascinating to see how we are producing more clothes than ever. We're throwing them away at a faster rate. And the communities that are on the front lines of both making our clothes and also contending with the volume of waste that our clothes generate are increasingly in more precarious situations. Partly it's because we've headed as a global fashion industry Two countries where labor laws are weak and enforcement is even weaker. Um, there are very few safety webs uh, for workers to rely on, whether it's social security, health insurance, protections. And what we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic is really exasperate all of these forces at play. But if we were to pick one single reason why we haven't seen the wealth creation really you know, trickle down to the communities that are producing our clothes. Um, it's predominantly because of the ways that the contracts are written, the way that the supply chain is set up, and the fact that a lot of our clothes today are made in countries with very young union movements um, and very little labor protections in place. A lot of the conversation around a more ethical fashion industry has centered on transparency, I think, in recent years. This idea that because supply chains are so long and so complex, they can be opaque and perhaps brands don't have enough information about what's going on in their supply chains. Do you think this has changed or improved? And is this one of the levers that we can use to improve things? While we need more transparency, I would be cautious to say that transparency in itself is the problem. You know, we've had over 15 years of audit data at this point where companies are able to use the audit data as an early warning signal to have an understanding of what's happening in their supply chain. But on the remediation side, we've seen very little improvement. So I would say outside of transparency, what we're needing is healthy industrial relations, better social protections for workers, making sure that workers have a voice in the table and are active part of the remediation as issues are found within factories and truly centering the workers as the customer and for suppliers to have more of a voice in negotiating contracts. Because even within the transparency conversation right now, we've been treating the brands as the customer rather than assuring that the transparent data is made available to workers, to unions, uh, to suppliers, and frankly, to everyday citizens as well. Okay. If we agree that the current system can squeeze suppliers, perhaps the most marginalised, at the bottom of the chain, COVID-19 has put this into even sharper relief and we know that lots of brands are cancelling orders. We also know that everyone is suffering from reduced budgets, from shuttered stores. We are hearing from a lot of brands that they're struggling. In these extraordinary times, what do you think is the way out for both suppliers and brands? 
asking brands to honor their commitments to pay up is important, but what happens next? Yeah. You know, I think the thing to put all of this in perspective is to look at the data, right? So in March, apparel brands and retailers canceled clothing orders worth 40 billion. And to say that, you know, as we have seen some of the brands and retailers enter administration, enter bankruptcy, uh, there have been handsome payouts to the executives to retain them. There have been an assurance when we looked at first quarter earnings that a lot of companies were shoring up cash to assure that the investors know that they'll be healthy and be able to weather the COVID-19 pandemic. But what's clear is that that, all of that has been done at the expense of garment workers. Because, you know, if you look at what an average worker in Bangladesh makes, it's $96 a month. We now have reports that workers are making half of that. And so as we come out of this pandemic, I think one of the things that we're really needing to take a hard look at is contractual terms. Um, a lot of the industry operates on purchase orders, uh, which have no enforceability in the court of law. And a lot of the industry also operates in debt with the suppliers taking on all of that debt. And so we need different types of financing schemes. We need to assure that brands and retailers are fronting some of the material and labor cost, and that we have clauses in contracts so that when there are future pandemic and climate shocks that we don't pay out shareholders and we don't pay out executives at the expense of workers. Okay, how might we share costs and margins along the value chain so that the industry can plan more sustainable business relationships? When it comes to pricing, one of the things that we need is really transparency. You know, when we think of the FOB price and it's how much of the money in the making of a garment is essentially goes towards marketing, towards retailer space, and how little ends up in the hands of workers. You know, there are very many living wage calculations. And so what we're needing coming out of this pandemic is having that honest conversation of what does it actually take to make a pair of jeans to make a top um, so that suppliers are not having to, you know, deal with auctions and essentially be pushed down to the last penny and backing into the price uh, and to be really factoring in what living wages would afford a worker in terms of a life of dignity and assurance and that that's the way to set prices. That's so interesting that you bring that word transparency into this context. So you're saying what we need is transparency of how much or if you like, what's the true cost of a garment? Exactly. What we need is what is a true cost of a garment, because, you know, the way the current industry is set up, you know, brands and retailers will look at, well, what's selling and how can we undercut each other to make the product even cheaper? You know, they will head to vendors and suppliers to say, can you make this pair of jeans or T-shirt for this amount? And if you can't, you know, reducing down to the last penny, then I'm going to go to the next factory and see if they'll give me a discount. And so then supply. Suppliers on the back end are having to think about cutting corners. And the, you know, one variable cost in all this is often at the expense of workers. So this top-down approach that's non-transparent when it comes to pricing is what has to be corrected. You know, we have to have an honest understanding of purchasing practices from brands and to say we need better forecasting from you. And you have to set a price based on living wages for workers and assuring that you're not running the factory into an overcapacity situation. 
Aisha, where do you think the incentive is for brands to move on this? How can we incentivize them to make these improvements and to, I guess, restructure the system so that, I don't want to say they're disadvantaged, but restructure a system so that workers are prioritized, but maybe profits take a dent? It's going to have to come with regulation. You know, we are an advocacy organization. We have, of course, woken citizens up globally who've been rising in solidarity in this difficult time when everyone is hurting to be asking for better protections of garment workers. But, you know, this campaigning industrial disaster by industrial disaster, pandemic by pandemic, is just a short band-aid solution. And in the long run, producing countries and exporting countries need better regulations. And that's the only way that we're going to assure that wage theft no longer happens and that we're not exploiting the makers of our clothes. Let me just finish up by asking you what good looks like. If you were to paint us a picture of a thriving and flourishing fashion industry that did centre dignity of workers in the supply chain and that was much more fair and much more ethical, what would it look like for you? If we were to dream a little bit and think about what good would look like, you know, one of the things that we really have to get away from is this highly seasonal turnover of product. You know, right now it's brands and retailers just throwing a lot of different product out there to see what sells. You know, we end up burning and incinerating what doesn't sell. And then on the back end, just playing for product that's actually sold and disregarding human rights. And so what we're needing is for brands to thrive that are working with consolidated supply chains, have true partnerships with their suppliers, where there are binding contractual obligations that assure healthy worker protections, living wages, a commitment to industrial relations, and to be building these protections for workers when it comes to safety nets. How might we not just treat workers with dignity and pay them fairly, but actually bring them into the profits so they've got a real stake in a venture's success? Rituraj Diwan is a co-founder of an Indian social enterprise called Seven Weaves, and they work with indigenous weaving communities to protect biodiversity in Assam's Lohargat forest range. I spoke to Rituraj about his ideas for a complete rethink of how fashion might work with artisans. My name is Rituraj. Uh, I am the co-founder of Seven Weave Social, and I'm calling in from Kohati in India's northeast. Fantastic. So Seven Weaves is a social enterprise. You're based in Assam, and you've focused on eerie silk production and weaving. Can you tell us about it and maybe begin by explaining the silk? In all other silk, what happens is you, know, you have to kill the worm to take the silk. But in the yeah, so you, silk, you would bake them or you would boil them, right? Yeah, you have things like that, which is very pathetic. But here, the beauty of this every silk is that you can wait, you know, you can wait until that like, the moth is emerged out from the cocoon, and then you can take the cocoon and spin it to every silk yarn. It's so beautiful, you know. This community is an indigenous community of Assam, and this indigenous community of Assam you know, lives in that, uh, it is part of the Indo-Burma biodiversity hotspot. And the place where actually we have started the project is called Lohar Ghat Forest Range, which is very near to uh, the capital of Assam province. And, you know, like, it's a very beautiful place. You know, it, it, it has a hill, it has a river, and, you know, it has a beautiful lake. And um, there are some 19 villages where, you know, this community has, has been living for centuries. Every household in this forest village is traditionally rearing airy silk for their own use. Sometimes produce a little more, which is we call surplus. 
And this is where actually we are intervening. You know, seven years is working on the surplus production using the traditional ecological knowledge without changing the land use so that, you know, there is no change in the biodiversity of the area. Would you use the term regenerative? Yeah, because... See, whatever is growing here is actually is the, like, you know, we are not having a single species which is taken from outside the Indo-Burma biodiversity. Mm. All that is grown here is part of the biodiversity, you know, reason which where we are doing. Secondly, there is no farming here. Like, we are not farming. See, we are just trying to try to understand this, you know. Like, when we grow the area and there is a demand, and if we start farming, then we will lose biodiversity because we'll claim land. What we are trying to do, we are just trying to work on a model of surplus by adding few more trees within the biodiversity of the same type. Are they mulberry trees? What are the trees? So era, which is in English is castor, is actually the primary food plant for this airy silk. There are eight different trees within the forest, which are also secondary host plant for airy silk. So most of our dairy production is now done on keseru. It's a it's a plant which is you know which is abundantly available in our forest, and we are not doing any plantation there. We are just adding it to the forest biodiversity. Let's talk about what supply chain transparency means to you and why it's important. See, every piece of cloth today is manufactured and processed at multiple locations. That's the reality of today's world. Like each of these, you know, natural fiber, which is like you know is the base of all this cloth, has a very strong agriculture component, like where multiple small, marginalized, or big farmers contribute differently impacting the environment. Mm. So then the ecological consequence of how you produce the fiber and process it into yarn is extremely high. Now, if it is hand-spun, there are multiple artisans who work on it, leaving a small negative ecological impact. But for a meal-produced product, the negative impact can be huge. We don't know. Like we, it's, it's different. At the same time, there is no equitable distribution of value at each stage of this value chain. That's one of the biggest concerns. And how effort is compensated. So when we started this project, you know, three years back, and uh, we started, you know, moving in uh, in the villages and trying to understand how the whole things is working, we were so surprised to see the hand-spun airy yarn produced by the villagers, which takes 40 days to produce one kilo of yarn. Oh wow who use their arms, drop spindle, which is a traditional method of, you know, hand spinning the yarn. So traceability and transparency will ensure, you know, everyone throughout the value chain is compensated appropriately. Mm -hmm. That's what we believe in, you know, and the end customer has also, you know, complete confidence in the authenticity and provenance of the product. We often talk in fashion about very long supply chains and them being very opaque and perhaps global. So one garment or one textile could be produced in many different places or even many different countries. But the way that you work, you're rearing the silk, then the artisans are actually hand dyeing, hand spinning and hand weaving all in the same community. Yes, it's, it's all in the same community. So it's very short. And I mean, your supply chain is incredibly short, basically. And not only that, you know, like we have identified 31 different kinds of plants and plant parts from this forest, not from anywhere else, you know, from this forest, which gives us the mordens, which gives us the softener, which gives us the, you know, the because we have to degum the cocoon. So we use a plant to make the alkali. Wow. And plant, yeah, yeah, that plant, you know, alkali is used for degumming the cocoon. Then we have colors, you know, we have more than 35 colors, which we have, you know, now used. We have 35 color palettes. All source from the same village, you know, like it's, 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 it's very small, you know, it's a very small forest and we have everything there. 
in fact like you know when we speak about the modern concept of circularity and you know sustainability i think these villagers are living it for ages and this is what actually the example of you know what sustainability should be like somebody said to me like when they came to us the first time they said oh is it sustainable i said no it's way of life clearly i have any additional thing which actually i have a concern regarding this traceability transparency in the supply chain okay we also uh, when the beginning we do something similar we apply for the certificates and you know and we become ready for the world market but as we started working on the thing we find the complexity of the whole thing see if you see the current system of certification uh, for transparency and traceability it is something like you know a certification process where you know the inspectors will inspect and give you a certificate and the process is a very costly one now when we speak about ethical fashions when we speak about you know the the community they speak about in the marginalized and small farmers you know working and giving their product to the world fashion market these people you know don't have the money this is a huge problem which actually we are facing when we speak about the supply chain transparency and actually what we want because it is needed but when you think of a a method of you know how we'll do it then the whole system is not working for the artisans and the artisans is left out so rituraj how do you do it how do you approach it how do you ensure that you're being completely transparent about the way that you produce with seven weaves See what we are trying to do is like you know we are trying to record each and every part of the thing which we do. We have a system where we know which artisan's product is used in which growth. Would you say you know by name? We know by name. We know by name. We know where she lives. We know how much time she took to do that because we are experimenting with a lot of this yarn, and we have found out, you know, like you know, there are different kind of yarns they can produce, and we uh, with hand because hand is, you know, it's it's like you, know, you can you can just play with that, and it's, and people are so artistic here. The artisans are, you know, these old women, you know, they are doing it for you know ages. So we know by name we know by the product we know when it was done because you know different time of the year gives you different time of like different kind of thing because these are all natural So you mentioned that all of the plants that are needed in the dyeing process and the finishing process are there talk to us a bit more about those what kinds of dyes when we started the project we found out uh, the generation with whom we are working now has actually forgotten the art of working with natural dyes they are working with natural you know ingredients and also working with uh, hand spun yarn the problem was in for last 30 35 years you know there are a lot of projects uh, from the ngos and government sectors where mill spun mill you know dyed yarn were introduced and the weavers although they kept uh, weaving but they have stopped using the natural product in the whole process so what we did we did something kind of a grandma project where we went to the old ladies in the in the village and you know and we started asking them about uh, like you know what they used to use because they have also stopped using it And did you just say a grandma project? Yeah, it's so like nice. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's uh, that's a beautiful language but you're talking about the wisdom it's passed down and they hold it, right? Amazing. They hold it and you know but there was a gap. So we had to go not to the you know the daughters who are now mothers and who are like you know working with us and also their daughters working with us but we went to the old ladies in in the village and you try to understand you know what are the different things they you know they were using for say softening of the eri cocoon you know or you know boiling with uh, alkali what kind of alkali they used to do because there are different kind of alkali which is used traditionally by these communities also for preparing their food. 
So we have to understand, you know, because um, there are a lot of chemistry in it, you know, which is actually, you know, which is traditionally passed, traditionally kept. So we we work on that for, you know, for last, like, you know, last many months there. And in the end, you know, we have found out, you know, there are a lot of things which we can actually do. Then there was a very interesting thing which happened. Indigo we use, you know, in Assam, traditionally, was a different indigo than what indigo we use in the rest of India. We have a, like a variety of indigo, which is called Assam indigo. It's popular, you know, in entire Southeast Asian countries, but it is known as Assam indigo. But if you go to the communities, well, like, you know, in traditional communities, they have long lost the tradition of doing it. Okay, so we we just you know kind of reintroduce it in our community by learning it you know from the grandmas then you know old text and few people who actually you know shared their ideas and also experimenting with it. And now what we are doing, we have started you know replanting or reintroducing these plants in the forest patches, which are you know actually where traditionally these kind of things were growing. Recently, you were at Premier Vision in Paris. I know that lots of brands have been interested in the product from Seven Weaves Silk. Tell us about that. How's it been received? And what kinds of reactions have you had? And, and are you hearing that more fashion brands are interested in this high craft regenerative process? Yes. Actually, what happened, Clearly, part of our vision was to connect with the international market at high-end luxury level. Because we felt we felt that there, is, there will be an appreciation for craftsmanship and the seasonal impact of nature. Because you know, we are doing everything as part of the natural calendar. We are not following anybody's as calendar. Right? So what has happened? You know, it, at Mezzo, the exceptions because you know, imagine like 38 high-end luxury brands have shown interest to work with us. Congratulations. Thank you so much. You know, we are really hopeful, you know, because uh, of course, you know, there was a you know, lockdown and all these things are happening, but you know, the interest uh, is still there. We are, you know, working at various stages with different people, and uh, we have also got you know, invitation for showing our product, like focusing our product in Salvage World Fair this year, uh, which starts in September in London. And uh, there is also an invitation for from the very prestigious Japanese market. Actually, we were invited to be, you know focusing our like our product in may but due to covid we had to postpone it now hopefully you know the world opens one day and we will be able to visit japan because that invitation is still there richard how, how much do you think of this is about the beauty of the cloth and how much of it is about the story and the transparency of the supply chain and the fact that people can be sure that this product gives back if you like there are a lot of inquiries because of the product but at the same time, you know, I will say there are a lot of luxury brands where, you know, that supply chain transparency, ethical issues, and that the component of biodiversity has very important for them. In fact, there are, you know, big names who are saying they want to go for a you know, longer kind of a relation with us where, you know, they want to be part of the whole process. Because they have goals around biodiversity and around environmental impact. Exactly. Because sustainability, I think... Um, is a work, but biodiversity is something which everybody is looking at. And I think the way the whole seven-week concept work is something very different. That's what I, I find now when I went to Paris. Let me just ask you one more question. How can we be assured that the artisans are paid sustainably and fairly? The problem in the artisanal sector is that all the artisans are not paid regularly. So you have big names, you know, who works with artisans, but they work for, you know, three months or four months in a year. 
their renumerations are always on the kind of product they do and also like you know volume of product they do we decided not to do it that way so what we did we started you know centers in the villages all our women in these villages are weavers so we said okay you know if you want to come and join and these centers you have to work as a job so that you know like when you say empowering women how do you empower a woman you empower a woman not by giving her money but also giving her respect and that respect comes from you know when she has a job she has a say in the society and they are getting a fixed salary from the day we start this project since they are artisans they are community there is no register which says at what time you know they have come and what they have to go out and there is not a register which says which day is a holiday and which day it's not a holiday so they are free to choose their time to come and work in our centers we have requested them because we said when somebody will ask you if you have a job and if that job is a regular job then according to the standards in the world people say if you have 8 hours of job and you work 365 days means like 240 days a you know year with all the holidays and things like that then you have a regular job so try to maintain that and you will not believe me till today i have not found you know that somebody has not come because you know they don't want to come but they are taking the salaries they have taken the responsibilities people come you know people are happy but then we thought you know that is not enough what we have done since this is a for profit company we have also promised something more to the artisans and because the artisans has is this is artisanal company basically right so what we have done we have you know pledged 50% of the profit of this company will be given back to the artisans every year so they earn a fixed salary and also the 50% of the profit is also their money so it's about more than simply paying a fair wage you're actually giving the workers a stake in in the business and in its success right Yeah, it, it is. It's because we we say it's a for-profit company. So if it's a for-profit company, the motive is for profit. Now, in that motive of for profit, the like you know the artisans who are the you know the main like you know stakeholders of the whole thing should also be part of that profit. So we have pledged fifty percent of the profit to them, and see they are covered by insurance. Like everybody is covered by Indian value. Like it's like five hundred thousand Indian rupees uh, value of uh, like insurance covered each of these artisans today. Rituraj, do you think that? this is the way that parts of fashion could be headed i mean it would be naive of us to say that this is what's going to happen through the whole industry but do you think that there is a move towards more businesses operating like this do you think this is a recipe for success how do you view the future so now if my success metrics is you know uh, those clients who want to work with us in majority exceptions i think yes this is this is how we have to work and this is the way forward for everybody in this world to you know follow because you know people have started accepting good things and they don't just want to you know buy a product which is cheap they just they want to buy a product which is value thank you for listening my friends Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Just don't shout because I feel like it's quite ah, okay. noisy. Okay, just the rest. Yeah, yeah, go on. I have the syndrome of the Will you have silent or the, shouting? <laughs> yeah, no, I have the syndrome of the presenter in in an old Italian ballroom uh, ah. where I, <laughs> I love it. Because I used to be a waiter when I was in university and the waiter I used to work in a restaurant which after dinner was transformed into a ballroom. So It was fun. So did you say, and now it's time for the dance? And now, adesso si balla. <laughs> And everybody, boom, boom. <laughs>
Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. Mm-hmm.